everybody, this is Josh McKinney. I want to welcome you to episode 51 of the I Suck at Jiu-Jitsu show. Now today, I have a really cool guest being my good friend, Jeff Scholes. Now, uh, Jeff has been on the show before. Ideally, I wanted to get on Jeff on for the episode 50 Perfect Practitioner, but what we had talked about talking about was just going to be a little too much for uh, a 15 minute segment and if you guys checked out the episode 50 super show you know that kyle watson went 40 some minutes in his segment so i mean it's not really that big of a deal if you went a little over but i think i'm happy that we stood took this um really more mental health focused and uh, using jujitsu for mental health and we get really deep into training methods i'm glad we kept this as its own episode because it is really really packed and uh i think the first time that jeff was on we were very specific we only tried to talk about one thing because uh it was kind of at the beginning of the pandemic and we wanted to make sure that people had the best methods that they could to be able to train while they couldn't train. And uh, with Jeff, we were able to do that. We were able to get really deep into uh, imagery training. But on this episode, we got to go a lot more broad. The idea was um, he was going to be the person to finish off the the mental health awareness in May. But uh, I had ended up having somebody else finish it off. So I still wanted to use a kind of mental health focused episode with Jeff, but nonetheless, it is just very deep. It's very, uh, very conducive if you want to have different training methods, if you want to have different mindsets for your training on top of just kind of some really good explanations of using jujitsu for mental health. Uh, Jeff is one of my favorite people to talk to. I would honestly about anything. I love talking to Jeff about jujitsu, but Jeff's just very intelligent. And so uh, it's really cool hearing his perspective on uh, on different things. And it's really cool hearing him kind of debate on things too. It doesn't really happen too much in podcasts. Jeff and I agree on a ton of different stuff, almost you know, most of the same training stuff uh, we kind of agree on. But uh, if you ever listen to how Jeff disagrees with somebody, it is so elegant and uh, you don't really realize that he is disagreeing with you. He does a really good job of listening to other people. I think it's something that almost anybody could do better. I think most people struggle with that. They want to uh, tell you what they think. And then while you're responding, they want to be thinking of how they're going to respond and not listening to what you're saying. Something that Jeff does really well. And I think it's kind of noticeable on this episode, but if you know Jeff in real life, it is very noticeable is he's a very good listener. I think, um, you know, being in the field that he is in, it probably is a big help. It probably helps him to be able to listen to people, but he just does such a good job of it. And if there's anything subtle to take from this episode, it is that, it's just the way that he listens. I think it's really unique, it's really fun. Uh, before we get into the episode, just thought of the day, if you guys are not subscribed to uh, the Simplifying Jiu-Jitsu, the ebook that I wrote and audiobook uh, that we recorded, you should do that as soon as possible. There are uh, eight days left as of the uh, posting of this episode. 
we are closing on June 23rd. It will no longer be free, but for right now, djsucks.com slash simplifying. It is 100% free. Um, I made a post on Facebook today, yesterday, from when this podcast came out. Uh, but I made a post on Facebook talking about how I don't think I've ever tried harder uh, on something in my life because I've never really written anything. Um, even in school, you know, we were never required to write anything much like this. And uh, we're especially write our thoughts and our opinions on something uh, in the school that I went to. And so it was really a cool situation for me. And I really love how the book turned out and especially how it looks. It really looks aesthetically pleasing. And uh, so I, that was cool. But if you guys haven't checked it out, I really think it could be something really useful for you. It's just kind of an introduction into uh, looking at jujitsu from a different perspective or simplifying jujitsu. It is, uh, I think, I, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I think so often we're so focused on technique. We're so focused on what's the newest technique, what's the most innovative technique that we don't think about the method that we are using for training. Uh, I could list every technique in the world. I could uh, find every video of every technique being demonstrated and show you all of it in a row and it wouldn't help you. And why wouldn't it help you? It's because you need training method. That is one of the most important things. We have to put it into practice. And there are different ways to put it into practice besides just slap, bump, and roll. There are uh, different ideas and different thoughts. And that's what we really wanted to push with Simplifying Jiu-Jitsu, the ebook. And uh, I think I have some really cool stuff coming out that will expound on that, that will make that deeper and that will make uh, hopefully the understanding of training in jujitsu more. I think this is something that very few people are doing. And then even less people are telling others about, you know, if you do have the training methods, the super secrets, a lot of times you want to keep them to yourself. But the truth is like, uh, if you want to make a big impact in jujitsu, I think you have to, or, or in anything, you have to look at where there's a problem and, and figure out how to solve it. And I really think that the problem in jujitsu is training method. So like I said, bjjsucks.com slash simplifying. Be sure to check that out. Without further ado, here is my interview with Jeffrey Scholes. I know you guys are going to absolutely love this one. Good to go, Jeff. How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Josh? I am doing good. I'm doing good. Is uh, is everything? I haven't seen you in person in probably six weeks, something like that. Is everything going good? Your wife's good? Yeah, yeah. Everything's good. We're good over here. Um, quarantine beard going strong, of course. Um, hygiene has gone out the window since quarantine. <laughs> I don't have to take showers anymore. Um, so, I'm glad we're doing this over Zoom and not in person. Right. Yeah, that's a good choice on your part. Um, but everything's been fine. We're all well. We're safe. You know, in, enjoying the quarantine as much as possible. But um, yeah, it's been tough not being around jitsu. You know, I really mm -hmm. miss it. Choking my best friends. I understand, man. I understand. And on the topic of hygiene, I think I made a Facebook post about this a few weeks ago, but. Um, I think just out of habit, I generally only shower after jujitsu class because I do two jujitsu classes a day. So it's not like I would be showering any other time 
And uh, I, I think I went about four weeks before I realized I hadn't showered yet because I hadn't trained jujitsu. I know. It's crazy. You just have these habits that develop because of jiu-jitsu. And as soon as jiu-jitsu is out the window, it's like, what do I do with my life now on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays? Mm-hmm. Those are my jiu-jitsu days. You know, it's just funny how that happens. How long have you been training jiu-jitsu, Josh? I have been training for 12 years. Has anyone ever talked to you about the way that you say jiu-jitsu? Um, yes, people say it to me all the time. So, okay, okay, let's go ahead. You're now you're you're a speech therapist right now, so go ahead. Tell me how to say it. Uh, I have no idea. I was just wondering because it's a very particular way of saying. And my wife was the one that remarked. She's like, "Why does he say it like that?" So, you, my wife, who doesn't train jiu-jitsu, notice that you say it in a particular way. Okay, so there are two things that I say weird. Okay, jujitsu is one of them, which is I say jet ju jujitsu like with an e um and i you know i'm aware of this uh i've tried my best to change it but after 12 years i think i think it's pretty much where it's gonna go the other thing that i say weird is and i'll pronounce it well right now because i'm trying to but pillow i always say pillow i put an e in pillow you know it's it's not easy being me jeff it's not and it's weird how these things kind of pop up language wise, you know, it's probably a dialect from this general region. I mean, your dad's from here, right? He is. Yes. Yeah. Well, probably some, some people just have a natural dialect that occurs in general areas. Like, so it pop up in Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. These things just kind of happen. I mean, I, I just thought I'd give you a hard time. About it. <laughs> do you, do you notice, you know, you're in the Midwest, you know, and you've been here for what, three years, two years. Yeah. And so have you noticed anyone saying Ope? Ope? Mm. No, I have not noticed that. Oh, man, that's a very common Midwest thing. And you'll notice it now. So you will be walking around in the store and you're like, both you and someone else's cart are about to meet. And so you go, Ope, Ope, Ope. And then you, let me just squeeze on by there. And uh, it is the most Midwest thing that there is. I, I think Becha and uh, Oya is a really big one from oh, yeah. family northerners. Uh, they're from Wisconsin, so I get that a lot. You, know, you betcha. Uh, we, we dig on them every time they say that kind of stuff. So <laughs> but, oh, Midwest Missouri, I noticed the oak as much, but I could definitely notice the northerner accent. Okay, okay. I, I get that. You know, there's the Midwest, I think, because there is so many transplants here that you get a lot of mixture of different languages and things like that. Yeah, I believe it. And, and while we're on the Midwest and we're on the St. Louis area, what are, what are your feelings? Because I, was, I feel like I think I was probably the person to introduce you to St. Louis style pizza. What are your feelings on St. Louis style pizza, Jeff? Yeah, I think it's the best of its kind, but you have to like that kind. That That is a good answer. Yes, it is the best of that kind of pizza. And I can tell you, nowhere else in the world makes pizza like that. Mm-hmm. And I told you about uh, regional foods and how they spread, right? Like buffalo wings. We know about buffalo wings uh, because they came from buffalo. But I just wonder why St. Louis pizza has not spread so widely. I think it's going to it's gonna blow up soon. I'm going to buy some stocks in St. Louis pizza. You know, I suspect that it's going to spread in the near future, of course. It will. It will. It's, uh, it's just, you know, 
it's waiting, it's waiting and it's going to explode soon. You know, yeah. we just got to get the supply chain thing done. Mm-hmm. We were planning on closing the Budweiser brewery so we could just turn that into a big place where we're just putting out St. Louis style pizza. It's, it's a big thing with the mayor and stuff like that. They only have so much Prevel cheese. There is only so much Prevel cheese and we choose to save it for ourselves. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> so uh, just to get out of food and my pronunciation of things, um, I actually told this story in the last episode that I just recorded, but I feel like it's necessary to be told again. I was, um, you know, first day back at the gym, I see one of the teens, uh, she's 11, one of the, the younger girls that trains at my gym. The first thing that she says to me, first thing, I was listening to your newest episode of your podcast and stupider is not a word. And I, I said, okay, th- thank you. It's good to see you too. It's been, you know, it's been two months. It's great to see you too. I think the correct pronunciation, pronunciation is most stupidest. Yes, I think that is, I think that is right. I think you're right. Um, and what do I know? You know, you're a doctoral candidate. I, <laughs> you, 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 you know what's up. So you know, this episode came about because I'd made a post on social media, just yeah. asking for people um, that kind of have expertise on, um, you know, on jujitsu and mental health and how they can um, like coincide. And you are somebody that I have known for a while and you happen to be a black belt in jujitsu and you also happen to be, you're, you're a psychiatrist, right? <laughs> I think you know this, Josh. Okay, um, okay, okay. Yeah. So a I psychologist. I am finishing my PhD in clinical psychology. I don't have my doctorate yet. But um, in about a couple months here, I'm going to be moving away to finish my internship, which is required to get my PhD, uh, moving away from your terrible knee slice. Um, <clears throat> so I'm getting my, my doctorate in clinical psychology, where in psychology we do how behaviors and the way you think and the way you interact with other people influence your mental health um, and your physical health because they're very much tied together. Um, psychiatrists, as you know, prescribe medication. They can do therapy, but I think they just make more money doing medication. So you're saying anybody that I know that's a psychiatrist is a bad person? Um, uh, I don't know if they're bad people, but you may want to hit them up if you want drugs. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. So uh, basically, you're, they're saying like that there are um, these different factors in you know in your mental health. What would be something that is very closely related to jujitsu or jujitsu in general that is a positive for mental health? Yeah. Well, like if we take a step back and we look at any exercise, you know, uh, I think any exercise is good for you, whether it be, you know, just increasing your self-esteem, uh, which we, we have some jargon called self-efficacy, the idea that you can go ahead and cause some outcome to occur, you know, be able to accomplish something that increases your socialization by being in some kind of sport. You know, even if you're smack talking to best friends, you're still interacting with people. Um, it reduces your weight. Um, it improves cardiovascular endurance, decreases risk for chronic illness like heart disease or diabetes. And that's just all sports. And I think martial arts in particular, and let's say there are several layers to this, there's martial arts, so like Tai Chi and Aikido, 
they have certain benefits. They very much emphasize discipline and perfect technique, and they have some amount of motion and, and activity. But hard martial arts, which I feel jujitsu falls in that category of very hard martial art because it's a very demanding martial art. It's much along, more along the lines of wrestling as far as the amount of vigor that's required to do it. It has much more benefit as far as you know, your overall mental functioning, your physical functioning, and the, um, the other parts of it, there's a philosophy involved in martial arts as well that you wouldn't find in sports. So there's multiple layers of things that it could bring you. And I'm just gonna tell you up front that you know, the problem is, is we don't have a lot of interest or money involved in studying martial arts as an intervention. It's only been a few studies that are really high quality. Uh, most of them are, are, don't have that many people that they studied and you know, the more people you have that you look at and you see if there's been any effect of martial arts, the more evidence you have. So all of this to say that sports in general do help us just by making us active. But I think there's something special about martial arts that science has largely neglected to find out yet. That, so that, uh, while, while you were talking about this, I thought we, you know, and I'll mention this in the pre part of the show too, but um, you know, we're not using this episode to diagnose or treat any mental illness or anything like that. Uh, but on that, I know from, uh, just personal experience and talking to people and what I've dealt with myself, when you are, when you use jujitsu so much for your mental health, and then it is put on pause, uh, it can be very, very hard for people to deal with. The last time that you were on, we talked a lot about um, trying to get better at jujitsu using um, what, using what kind of work do we call it? Yes, yes, imagery training. And so, using imagery training to um, get better at jujitsu uh, was the example that we used. But what if you use jujitsu for mental health, and then you're put in a position where you know, either you move or, you know, something like this happens and you're not able to train jujitsu. What, how do you handle that? What do you kind of look to for that? Yeah. So like, I just see jujitsu when we do it, it gives us some sense of um, accomplishment, some sense of reward. It's, it's pleasurable, right? Even if we're getting our butt kicked, most of the time you're like, Hey, I got my butt kicked, but I did something today. I learned something. I improved, you know, I, stop the guy from beating me up so bad whatever it is you have some positive feelings that occur because you did that thing mm -hmm. now if someone is stressed all day at work stressed all day at home and they only have frustration and stress everywhere else in their life and they only use jujitsu as that source for positive emotions when that's taken away they're just left with those negative emotions largely throughout the day Mm -hmm. So then what I would say for someone that doesn't have jiu-jitsu that that was their like really their moment that they truly loved and enjoyed and it brought them so much happiness. You got to find other opportunities to feel that throughout your day that may look like something else. It, it may um, involve listening to music, going and taking a bubble bath, whatever it might be. I know you're a big fan of bubble baths, Josh. Yeah, um, I, I, I know you say that sarcastically, but yes, I, I am a huge fan of bubble baths. You know, I have yeah. this Epsom salt scrub that I use. I don't know if it helps with soreness, but it makes me feel beautiful. So yeah. put the music on the candles. All that <laughs> stuff. Um, so that's one example of what we call behavioral activation. And it's actually one of the first line treatments of depression 
and this is just for educational purposes, that when you're depressed, it's because think about it from like a, a dog's perspective. A dog does stuff because they get rewarded for doing it. When a dog brings you the newspaper, you say, good boy, he's going to keep bringing you the newspaper because he's getting some kind of reward from it. Or, you know, when you feed your dog, it likes you. If you stop feeding your dog, maybe it wouldn't like you anymore. So the same thing happens with human beings. If we don't go out and do things that bring us some kind of reward, whether it's even going to a job, imagine if your job stopped paying you. If you're not getting that reward, you're probably going to stop going to your job. I know there's a lot of people that are dealing with that situation right now, and it's a horrible situation. And it's really tough. And of course, humans are a little bit different than dogs. We can think and, and do things much more complex. But I just say that we have the same learning system. We get rewarded through activities and it actually boosts our mood. And we don't engage in these activities, it lowers our mood. Or our mood, which would otherwise be low, doesn't get that boost. Did, did you notice anything personally that um, you weren't getting that boost without being able to train? Yeah, yeah. And I think there is room for supplementation, you know, watching jiu-jitsu matches, being engaged in like uh, watching MMA matches. I can still exercise and get some of that boost because I've always been lifting weights ever since I was a little kid. You know, that's what I did before jiu-jitsu. So I kind of been lifting more weights. Um, <clears throat> and you saw my caveman uh, workout equipment. <laughs> in um, so yeah, it, you know, I can find things I'll substitute. It's not as good because jiu-jitsu is a special type of activity that is so enjoyable for me. Um, but at the same time, I, I recognize that, you know, sometimes I feel bummed out. Like I get kind of disappointed and I allow myself to feel those moments and I express what I feel and you know, say, you know, hey, to my wife, I say, hey, Jana, you know, I wish I could train right now. I'm super bummed out. I allow myself to feel bummed out. But I also recognize that there's something I can say and I can use a reframe. I can use some kind of statement, a coping statement. And I say, this is not going to last forever. There will be a time where I can go ahead and train Shitsu again. Mm -hmm. And just by accepting what I have right now, also allowing myself to feel what I feel, but also at the same time, I can say some kind of coping statement, talk to myself, coach myself, and can make myself feel better about the fact that I can't train Shitsu right now. What about for people that are maybe they're feeling that way and they've been struggling with it and then their gym opens? How should you approach getting to get back into it? Should you just say, this was my normal training schedule, time to go back? Or how do you handle that? Um, tell me more about your question. So let's say, um, let's say that I had been training you know, I, my normal schedule, and I would use jujitsu for mental health all the way up until this pandemic started, right? And then once it started, not able to train, not really able to do much. Uh, and maybe I'm even, I'm gaining weight, I'm suffering from depression. Yeah. When the gym opens back up, do you just, is it like you're flipping a switch and you just try to jump right back in? Or is it mm -hmm. something you slowly start to transition and try to get back into again? Or how would you handle that? Yeah, so I'm going to say, as far as depression and anxiety, exercise has an anxiolytic effect. So any exercise will reduce feelings of anxiety six hours after you, for up to six hours after you exercise. So if you're a very anxious person, you got a big presentation in the morning, going, doing a cardio workout before you go give that presentation to really help you feel less anxious. Also, depression, any exercise you have significantly reduces those negative emotions because you have the endorphins, you have the activation, all that stuff. So 
any exercise is good for mental health. Let's just say that as a bulk statement. Um, I have to be careful not to speak outside of my own expertise. Mm -hmm. I am not um, a personal trainer or a physical therapist. Um, I am not a physiologist. Uh, I would say from my own personal experience, when I have not trained for a long period of time, say I take a vacation or something happens where I can't train, I'm always very careful when I'm coming back into it because I really don't want to get injured. Mm -hmm. And if you just go out there and go as hard as you would normally go before a pandemic, I could see it being a really potential case of you getting injured. You know, you're more likely to get tired, more likely to make mistakes. So I make sure that I do a good cardio session and I stretch really well the night before I train so that my body's nice and limber. But this is my own subjective experience. Uh And I'm just a little more careful and hesitant in the moves that I do um, when I'm actually training because I want to keep training jiu-jitsu. I think about it like I don't want to go out there and have it all just for one day and get injured and then be off the mats again. Mm -hmm. Do you... Do you feel like coming back that you are going to notice a, um, obviously physically our cardio is not going to be the same, but do you feel like from a technical standpoint that you're going to be as sharp or, or how do you think you'll be able to handle that just in your opinion? Yeah. So, um, I think speaking from your experience, have you had any like significant injuries that took you off the mat? Um, do you remember when Nick broke my shoulder into So I was off the mat for about, I think I was only off the mat for like five weeks for that. Um, When I broke my toe in two and you and I glued it back together in a target bathroom, that I think was probably the longest I'd ever been. I think that was six weeks before I got to train again. Yeah. Uh, So I've had roughly about a year or more off the mats because of a knee surgery and a foot surgery. Um, And I can tell you, I, I have personal experience. I've had significant amounts of times off the mats. And there are some things that you can do to keep your, men, your, your mind sharp. And we talked about this last time with imagery, um, that you can uh, put a fight in your mind every night and review these techniques. And I've been doing it on a daily basis, trying to keep my technique. It is normal that you have a, a disconnect between your brain and your body's execution. So your timing might be off. So... What I like to do is I take it slow. I really focus on maybe one or two rounds working with somebody that um, is a little bit lower level than me and allow them to really do their attacks and try to attack me. And I just mostly play defensively. So I'm trying to sharpen my defense techniques. And then as I feel more comfortable and get really good and warm, then I would go with a higher belt and just try to do some very basic techniques, stick to my game, something that I know very well. I wouldn't try anything new. Um, there is always going to be some dip in your technique. And like I said, the timing is what really kind of goes out the window for me and your condition. So your body's able to condi- is normally conditioned to be able to do certain moves. My grips are going to go tired very quickly. So I think recognizing that that's a normal consequence and accepting that everyone's going to have that and try not to be too tough on yourself would be a good strategy for a lot of folks to use because there, there may feel some frustrations when they get back on the mats. So uh, you had brought it up and I had actually brought it up in the beginning of the episode, but this is the second episode that we've done together. The first one, we really focused on, you know, imagery training and in the podcast business, this is what's called a callback. So the people that haven't listened to this need to pause right now and listen to that whole episode and then start right from now. But uh, just, I had a question kind of following up as I, had tried, you know, and, and done imagery training throughout this whole pandemic. 
do you or is it common to feel almost a level of anxiety when doing imagery training at least I know for specifically for me it's through jujitsu like I'm competing with someone in my mind is that normal yeah um that is something completely normal and I think it's something that can be good as well so um I think the body doesn't know whether something is imagined or actually happening. It acts as if something is actually happening. So if I imagine myself in a competition situation, it was such a visceral experience. Your amygdala kind of encodes the emotion that's associated with that experience because it's kind of like a fight or flight situation. Um, so it's very visceral and you remember it because your body wants to survive, right? It's like for survival purposes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's totally natural that you would have that response like that, that kind of boost in your blood pressure and your, um, your heart rate. And you may even start sweating and shaking if you're really intense. Um, I think that is something that you can learn to habituate to or get used to. You can build a tolerance for it. And it's going to actually translate to you being more able to deal with that pressure when you compete. It's just how much you have a tolerance for it, you know? And you can also engage in like whatever kind of regulatory strategies you like to use. I use deep breathing or mindfulness, acceptance, self-talk, all these things you could do um, in that moment within your, uh, your imagery practice or while you're doing imagery practice. And then that makes you more sharp at being able to do it when you need it in your sport. That makes perfect sense. I think I'd struggled with that mentally. I could have just texted you and asked you, but I didn't, but uh, just in, in <laughs> yeah, doing like, yeah, I don't want to talk to you more than I have to, you know, but, uh, you know, just in doing this imagery training, that's something I noticed. And it's something that hadn't occurred to me is that, uh, practicing dealing with the anxiety of competing is something that I should be doing, you know, it's something that's very important. Yeah. I think also for me, how you feel when you watch both fights, maybe fights that didn't go the way you wanted to go. Yeah. That angry, <laughs> but yeah, I do. I get that. I, in watching myself compete, we were actually doing um, during the pandemic, we we're doing video breakdowns for some of my students. And I actually tried to do it for some of my matches just to kind of point out like, Hey, this is something I could have done better. And I actually couldn't do it. I, uh, I would, you know, start talking. And I just felt like I would get, I would feel like I was competing still. Like, why did I make that mistake? Why didn't I do this or do that? So is that something that you use in imagery is watching old matches? I think so. Some people have a hard time managing certain experiences. And unfortunately, when it comes to anxieties, like, a lot of times that's kind of like an anxiety thing or, you know, just the fact that we lost, we kind of ruminate or beat ourselves up about it. One of the dumb, and I say dumb in the way, the way that it's not complex, not dumb as in it's bad. Um, one of the dumb ways, easy ways that, th that may not be comfortable to manage that, those feelings is just rewatching those old tapes, recognizing what comes up for you and being able to sit with that feeling and don't engage in any kind of very negative kind of monologue about it, beating yourself up about it, accepting whatever that experience is. And then that makes you probably better able to bounce back from losses, better to, able to refocus when you're in a competition situation if something didn't go the way you wanted it to. And overall, it will reduce the negative emotions associated with your sport if you can learn to tolerate those things. Because imagine if you go out there, training's tough, 
you're doing lifting, you're doing everything you can for competition, and it's not, you're not winning. You get, you get negative emotions. And then over time, that can lead you disengaging from your sport. So watching those videos of your own competition, it's an opportunity to learn and learn how to tolerate some of your own self-criticism. And I think uh, watching those old matches for me is not particularly fun. Um, and I'm trying to remember the exact question that, that brought this up. If you could remind me. Just, just in going into you know, watching your matches and feeling that either anxiety or frustration yeah. and just kind of using that, that imagery training with that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so by watching your matches, you will eventually be able to tolerate it. You will get to a point where it doesn't affect you as much. Maybe you won't notice it. For me, I, I had, like, so before competition, when you're doing imagery practice, how do you feel? Um, I notice a lot more anxiety, like, each time I will try to use imagery. Yeah, yeah. And, and we talked with that, about that with our training partners, that we do have some amount of anxiety that comes up. But the more that you engage in that thought process and you are able to regulate yourself, eventually your body will learn that it doesn't need to be as revved up. So it may feel uncomfortable, but sitting with that discomfort over time, you can train yourself to get used to it. It's the same thing that maybe your dog doesn't allow, like uh, when you play the radio very loud, right? The dog will be very scared of the radio at first, but if you keep the radio on, eventually your dog will just be able to sleep in the same room as the radio. They'll just mm -hmm. get used to it. It doesn't scare them anymore. You learn to, and it's, like I said, Pavlovian conditioning, classical conditioning. You just relearn that it's not a threatening stimulus. Um, and it's the same thing. If you have a big, uh, a big presentation that you have to do, you have something that's anxiety-provoking, something that causes you a lot of worry, and it's not definitely going to harm you, um, it can be as simple as just going and talking in front of people. The more that we expose ourselves to those things, the more we can learn to get used to it. And that's ultimately what we do in therapy for the anxiety disorders. That, that makes sense. Okay, so I wanted to go back to this. I wrote a note on it, um, but you used the word, you used a lot of words that I don't know, but here is the one that I was curious about, the word self-efficacy. Yeah. What is self-efficacy? How is so, it? Efficacy? No, F. Efficacy. Okay. Being self-effective. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so it's a big part of what martial arts does for people and how it improves their well-being, which is a big part of um, kind of the, the benefits that come from martial arts. Um, and it can improve our overall if our, we have a good well-being, we're less likely to suffer from some kind of mental illness. Um, and it's just your ability to make a certain outcome occur. You have a belief that you can make a certain outcome occur. Um, so it's like as simple as, oh, I need to get a new driver's license. Where some people would be kind of um, overwhelmed by the thought of having to go to the DMV and file paperwork and take care of these things. If you've overcome, let's say, going to a jiu-jitsu competition and you've competed and you have confidence that you're able to, do these things, that, that confidence will translate to other situations and increase your overall perception of being able to accomplish things in your life. Okay. So, um, for example, when I, you, I, I think probably the good example is if you ever see people that are on like a national championship football team, it's very common for these people to go and do something 
very big in their life. You know, so they, obviously, you know, in football, people are trying to get to the NFL, but even the people that don't, they do seem to be able to have successes in their life. So it's almost like those successes build the confidence to put them into a more successful situations. Yeah. I mean, there is a certain amount of sport specific confidence. So, you know, I can be feeling very good in, in jiu-jitsu and recognize that I'm a black belt, but still feel kind of anxious when I talk in front of people in my normal everyday job, mm-hmm. um, just because that's just who I am. And I have to understand that, that in, in public speaking situations, sometimes I get a little bit worried, but there is some amount of confidence that says, Hey, I fought in front of thousands of people, you know, giving a speech to ten, a group of 10, just comparatively, you can see how logic wise you'd be like, Oh, I shouldn't be afraid of this. And just that, that understanding, that ability to reframe the situations does give me some amount of confidence to be able to do other things. And I think that speaks to what sports do for people in general and what jiu-jitsu can do for people, I think. When you have, let's say, collegiate athletes, right? When you're looking at Division One athletes or even Division Three athletes, anyone that's competed at a high level in sports, they tend to have better health overall, overall in their life. They tend to have, um, uh, let's say, higher academic achievement. They tend to be more achieving in their jobs. So there's something that sports are doing. It's teaching people some skills, whether it be determination, uh, self-confidence, you know, even if it's just bringing out their, their utmost potential and, and sticking with tough situations until they see it through to the end. There's something about sports, and I think in particular a tough, a tough, tough martial arts like jiu-jitsu, it teaches people those sometimes they're, they're hard to attain that, that grittiness. Um, and I think that, that that is what you're touching on with those footballers. They learn that through their struggles through that com- competition, they were able to get better and stronger because of their engagement in the sport. Okay. So um, on, on this note, I wanted to kind of change a little bit, cause this is something that I feel like I should have asked you uh, more in the last episode because you're somebody who I feel like does this better than maybe you know almost anybody I've ever trained with. But uh, I wanted to talk to you specifically about what you like to do for progressing and getting better at jujitsu. I feel like um, you know I feel like everybody that's good has some level of being able to adjust and change. But I will always feel like the Jeff that I rolled with on Monday is not the same Jeff that I roll with on Wednesday. Uh, and so what if do you have any specific tips in that that type of progression and um, in understanding? Yeah. So uh, progress could look like a lot of different things. And it depends on the person's goals. I think uh, as I've gotten more mature in, in where I am in jiu-jitsu, um, I think I wanted to learn broadly and just know kind of everything and have multiple, like I want to be a Swiss army knife practitioner. Mm-hmm. So it all it came down to learning as much as possible. So I'd pick a day and on that day I would use a particular position. I'd say Monday was my butterfly day. Tuesday was my open guard day. And of course this is when I was training every day. Right. And then mm-hmm. I'd have each day I had different moves that I'd review and practice every single day on top of whatever my instructor wanted me to learn. Um, and this would just be moves that you hit and train, like in sparring. And I think as I've gotten more um, philosophical in my approach to jiu-jitsu, I've studied a lot more experts and how they think about jiu-jitsu, 
trying to get what their blueprints that they have in their mind. So I look at Danaher, and as much as he has great techniques, I'm also very much interested in his training philosophy. When you listen to people and the way they talk about jiu-jitsu, and even like uh, BJJ Scout, right? He, he, or they, I don't know if it's he or she or if it's a group of people, they, um, they talk a lot about turning the hips down. So it's not just a move, it's a philosophy that you can apply to multiple different moves. So then now to continue to progress, I seek out these philosophies and I seek out kind of uh, the science of jiu-jitsu that underlines uh, all the moves. And I really focus on those moves and I use that to develop a strategy that then I would personalize and adjust. And I think to progress, you have to constantly be seeking what are those nuggets of knowledge that can take my game to the next level and, and bring me a deeper understanding of jiu-jitsu. So if you were to... Right now, we found the part of your brain that stores all of your jujitsu knowledge. You can keep all other knowledge. We erase that. Would, how would you approach starting from white belt again and trying to progress? Yeah. So I think the way that, uh, well, if I didn't know how to do it, that's a good question. The way I started was that I found a black belt that had a similar body type of me as me and that had an instructional BBB, right? And as much as my instructor, he taught me all the fundamentals. He taught me everything I needed to know about jujitsu, but he had a little bit different game because he had a different body type. And a lot of things he liked to do, I didn't particularly like to do because of temperament, because of it was just different game, right? Um, so I found a jujitsu practitioner that had a similar body type to me because my thought process was, if they have a similar body type to me, they've done the trial and error and found whatever technique was most effective for that body type, mm -hmm. right? If I was super flexible, I'm going to be finding something that's super flexible. I'm not super flexible. I'm not going to be trying Baron Bola. It's very simple. And I find that black belt that had a similar body type to me and I do the techniques that they did and I try to just copy their game completely, ape their game, and then I made it more along the lines of what I want to do over time. I think when you're a white belt, just learning broadly and just going to fundamentals classes as much as you can, as much as they're may, maybe not fun, that really gives you that second level defense where you can start learning more advanced techniques because you know when you first try to throw up that triangle, someone's going to pass your guard. Mm -hmm. So you got to be able to have guard retention. And I think if I, if I just took away my jutsu knowledge, focusing on the basics, sticking with the basics, having good, strong foundation, will breed so much more progress in the long term than if you focus on something fancy. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that is a super important note. It's something I've always thought with, even when I was a lower belt, like a purple belt, and even probably as a blue belt, I found a lot of black belts that I would talk to, there was this disconnect from when they were a beginner. And they basically, they're at this point of black belt and they said, just do what I do now. But the problem with that is I don't have the base and I didn't kind of go through what they went through to be able to do that. You know, so not having the knowledge. And so I always talk to my coaches when we are, um, when we're teaching and the big thing, like kind of our mantra is you focus on the why, because if people can understand why something works and why we do something, that's like kind of the only way you can fast track. If I just show you the move that I know that I'm good at, 
it's just not going to apply to you unless you really can understand why it's working and why it's happening. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a school of thought that's completely contradictory to this. There's a, there's a guy that has this whole system. Uh, his name's Andy. He did the school of grappling. Remember I've shared you those uh-huh. CC studies and he talks about intuitive training and it's completely different. And there is some evidence for training like this, where instead of giving the person some kind of speech about how this works and the philosophy behind it, you have them learn through trial and error and you set up specific games and specific training to learn the move without actually telling them. the move, uh-huh. And then they'll learn intuitively how to do those things. Do you think that it will be would that that is hard to get people to approach as a beginner? I think it works really well for kids because that's what we do for children, right? That's exactly what we do. Yeah. Yeah. If you want them to learn back control, what do you do? You have them hold onto your back and try to fling them around mm-hmm. or you have them be in the position and you make it tough for them. And then they just intuitively develop techniques and you'll, you've seen it in kids. They, they know how to find a triangle when they really want it. They'll push one arm out, they'll pull one arm in, even though it's not perfect technique, they make it work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that intuitive training is important. It's a part of it. And I don't think really intellectualized people like it very much. If you uh-huh. have a geek that comes in like me, I'm going to want to know everything there is, why that doesn't work, why this works, all this stuff. And, and some people just want to get out there and train. And they don't maybe want all this speech that's involved in it. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's probably that's probably an important note is that so many people learn so differently. You know, like uh, for me, I am so hands on with my training, and so in the gym we probably positional spar more than for an hour class. We probably positional spar more than anybody in the world because that is the best way that I can learn and the best way that I can, you know, you know, exactly what we're talking about being intuitive training, you know, Hey, we're going to start in side control bottom person. If they can get back to close guard, they win, or if they can get on top, they win. And so my job is to now keep them down. And so you're learning about which way their hips are facing and how much easier it is to control them. If you can keep their hips from being square to you. And so I think that, I think that the combination maybe it just applies better to specific people. And for whatever reason, those are the people that stay at your gym because they're progressing the most or, um, you know, maybe just having both is really important, but it seems to me like the people that really want to get good at jujitsu, even if their, their coach or their team isn't specific to their way of learning, they seem to be able to find their way of learning through an instructional or through, you know, just different ways. Do, do you, would you agree with that? Yeah. And this is, you know, uh, a big part of what I think why sport benefits people so much, regardless of what it is, you could be the best bagel slicer in the world, but if you dedicate regular energy to it, you develop what I, I I've been teasing, you know, I'm going to have a, a long book that I come up with in the future, but it, it develops some amount of critical thinking and critical thinking, that ability to, problem solve, think about what, hap- what happened previously, come up with new solutions, that creativity, that is something that I think translates to multiple areas of life. And I think being at a jiu-jitsu school that maybe your teacher is, uh, you know, maybe more intuitive. He likes to teach you more intuitively or teach you very technically, and that just doesn't fit with your style or your learning style. Um, 
that problem solving, learning how to do that through consistent trial and error, sticking with it, being determined, learning that discipline, that's something that's going to translate to a lot of different domains in their life. And I think will will overall make them better in so many areas of their life, in relationships, at their job, whatever it might be. That's a skill that you learn from, from martial arts, I think. Do you have anything specifically in your mind for you that you um, picked up about yourself through jujitsu that you were able to apply to school or relationship or something along those lines? Yeah. So with jujitsu um, and, and martial arts in general, it's kind of this melting pot, right? And you have so many different peoples from so many backgrounds. And I had never met a Brazilian person in my life until I started doing <laughs> Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh-huh. I had no idea what their culture was like. But I think, and you know, on, on jiu-jitsu mats, you can have a lawyer, a doctor, and then you could have a construction worker, an ex-convict. You can have some Joe Schmo that works at, you know, uh, a job that maybe you didn't even know was a job, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you just come across these people and they all are the same. And I think learning how to deal with multiple different people, learning how to, you know, find common ground and have discussions and develop relationships with such a broad variety of people. You know, you got to have 150 friends if you're an instructor, you know, mm-hmm. you, you got to be able to manage all these people. And that's a skill that I don't feel I learned before I started getting involved in jiu-jitsu. You know, I just had my group of friends and people that I knew, but I never really had to understand how to operate in a large community. And I think that was something that through trial and error, you know, I wasn't always as graceful as I would like to have been, but you know, you learn how to manage different personalities and you learn how you can bring out your best self and be in that community and be a positive contribution to that. Mm-hmm. That that's really good. I think it's, probably something that without even knowing a lot of people get from jujitsu is you do deal with, uh, there's just absolutely no way you train at a gym with a hundred people and half of them don't share your political view or Mm -hmm. religious view or or just anything. And, And to be able to deal with those people. And I think too, just in our current day, being able to recognize that people are so much more than their religious political you know, what they, how they feel about recycling. There's so much more than that, you know, and you can disagree with someone on so many things and still like them, you know, and yeah. I, I think still it's choke them while you like them. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. And you beat up these people and then you guys are friends after. And so now if they don't handle getting beat up, well, then you're like, ah, I hate that guy, but <laughs> any, anyone else, you know, and I think that that is such a huge positive from jujitsu that, Maybe we don't think about all the time that you can, you know, you can, it's like a, it, it helps you become better at making friends. Yeah. And I I just want to reiterate, like, um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. So this is going back to the mental health thing. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. And it's been one of the best kind of ways of helping people out of, you know, a dependence on alcohol. Um, And I think when you boil AA down, there is a strong spiritual component, but aside from the spiritual component, the things, the active ingredients that it really has is that it holds people accountable and that there's social support. And I see the same thing in martial arts. I see the same exact thing that you're expected to go and train. If you don't show up and train, your instructor's gonna be calling you. Hey, why haven't you showed up to training? What's going on? You know, I want you to be here. And also there's social support. You know, how many times you had people coming to the gym, oh, you know, this is going on in my life, this stupid guy was giving me a hard time or whatever it is, you know, 
there is social support there for the people. So the same active ingredients that you see in AA, and I've seen some people come in with heroin addiction, uh, you know, have alcohol addiction, whatever it might be, they come in and they get better because of jujitsu because I see those same ingredients. And it's not seen exactly as an intervention. It's not like, hey, well, let's go to therapy. This is what we're doing. I'm going to hold you accountable and I'm, I'm supporting you right now, which is kind of more explicit than people are necessarily willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And there's other stigmas associated with therapy. But it kind of has that low profile. Those things are, those ingredients are in there and people don't always realize it. And I, I also want to speak to maybe the philosophy you, you talk about with your students, because I bet there's something that you tell your students as far as how to go about their life and you share messages with them. And I'm really interested in seeing kind of what is that like for you and what do you share with them? Like, what do I specifically share with my students? Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things that, and I think anyone who listens to the podcast would agree with with the, this is the, one of the biggest things I preach all the time, whether I'm on the podcast, whether I'm in my, um, you know, whether I'm teaching class or anything, it is, uh, I feel like there's so much inefficiency in, in, in everything. Um, mm -hmm. And, and we can put this in, you know, in government, I think there's a lot of inefficiency, there's a lot of ineffectiveness in jujitsu, I feel like there is a lot of inefficiency and ineffectiveness. And so there are things that I really, you know, preach constantly is just being efficient. And I think that, you know, I think basically putting in the work now to later on have an efficient system built. And I look at it for each position of jujitsu. Hey, we're going to look at this position. We're going to see how to simplify it. We're going to see how to answer the questions that need answered. And then we are going to make this an efficient system. And in the way I run my gym, it's like that, you know, in the, the amount of students, you know, we have um, over 150 students and I have no secretary, no general manager, anything like that, because the, the, the school is run very efficiently. And um, it, I think it, I think that's like the big thing. I'm sure that there are tons of small lessons that I'm always trying to, you know, push to my students. But I, I really think that, like a mantra of my life is efficiency. And that's what I'm always trying to push. Yeah. And I, I would say that they're going to take that message, whether it's explicit or implicit, because I bet there's a bunch of implicit messages we may not be aware of, but you create a very particular culture in your gym. And it, you can see in the camaraderie that you have with your students and then the students have with each other, that there is such a camaraderie. There's um, a kindness, there is uh, an appropriateness. You don't, you don't cuss or swear very much, you know, and you just not doing those things. It teaches your students, hey, you know, this is the kind of environment that we have, and then they're going to use that, and that's going to translate to kind of the rest of your life. So you're teaching them some very important lessons, and I think as an instructor, that is something that is not always that, something that we're aware of, but that is something that we're teaching them that I think can positively effective you know especially with kids um with kiddos at the end of class you have one or two minutes you're going to give them a speech and in that time as an instructor we can teach them so many life skills we can teach them hey you know someone beat beat me up doesn't mean i need to be mean to them i have to be a good sport we teach them how to be good shake their hand even if they beat you up and that's something that they take with them and learn to be a good sport throughout their life and that's something that they're going to benefit from 
um, just whether it's implicit or explicit that comes from you as an instructor. So that, that kind of brings up a question for me um, to you. I, I have a specific opinion on this, but I really would love to hear your thoughts, your opinion on it. Um, so I think a lot of times there are, whether it's a big affiliation that imposes it or whether it's just this specific gym, there is this thought process on um, putting forth specific rules um, in jujitsu, right? And, and um, not, I'm not trying to be negative towards any of them, but specifically you have to, uh, maybe you have to bow before you come on the mat or you have to do things. And there are these rules that I think the thought process is if we can get people to follow them, they will learn respect and they will learn to, you know, be respectful. Do you have an opinion on, on that? So, uh, I think a gym etiquette is important when you're doing things that could otherwise harm people. So there's a hierarchical structure within jujitsu schools and that the instructor is at the top of that. And ideally, whether it's enforced through, uh, you know, brute force, you beating up the student, there's a gym enforcer that's underneath you. Um, but there should also be some amount of deference that you're doing something that could otherwise kill people. So there needs to be some amount of hierarchy and respect and understanding that there has to be limitations, right? Because we are playing around with some dangerous techniques, mm -hmm. but at the same time, um, you know, they've done some studies that show that just because someone's in martial arts does not mean that they're not going to get into fights. You know, there, that's the common belief that, Oh, well, you know, if you focus on self-defense and you're really emphasize that they shouldn't use this, well, there's done studies and it does not affect what's called externalizing behaviors. Externalizing behaviors are things that like fighting, arguing, getting into uh, causing problems for your family and your loved ones or at school. It does not decrease that. Um, but there's a whole issue with environment and the people seeking out martial arts. Maybe people that are more prone to externalizing behaviors are more likely to go into martial arts. It, it's not a panacea. Let's just mm -hmm. say that. Um, when it comes to those rules, they will not necessarily bring the intended purpose out. But I see there's a reason for it. Now, um, how much of that is traditional baggage? I'll bowing to your master. I respect my master. I do those things. But I also have the ability to understand from an objective point of view, there's some rules that are handed down as far as respectful posture. You know, that comes from very traditional jujitsu, the original jujitsu, that you don't relax on the mats and disrespect your mats, you know, laying out. I understand that there's not really... Um, enough evidence behind that having to be there, but I'm going to do it because of tradition. Mm -hmm. And that's just my own personal opinion, but I, I, I definitely understand what people are coming with etiquette. And another layer of this, and this last thing I'll say, you know, there's a, a, an etiquette for parents and the way they interact with when their kid is on the mats. I do think that there, there has to be some rules for how parents are maybe coaching their kids or treating their kids during class. I think that's an important to create an overall culture and environment that everyone can agree on. And, mm -hmm. and maybe if we're walking around, you know, with our shirts off and there's children or women present, that might not be appropriate. That could be threatening or otherwise kind of uh, inappropriate, maybe not the most hygienic. I'm just saying that some gyms have these rules for a particular reason. They want to look a certain way. They don't want it to smell and so on. Of course, of course. And see that, that is, uh, that answer makes sense to me. I think that there is, uh, 
if I go to somebody's gym and they have certain rules, I'm, you know, it's my choice to go there. So I'm going to follow what rules that they put in place and what rules they, you know, what rules they respect. Uh, Something that is very common though, and this is something that has left a bad taste in my mouth is because I am not, um, you could, I probably would even put myself as anti-traditionalist with a lot of stuff, you know, um, you know, going against the grain, maybe because I have some problem with authority or something like that, but just going against the grain with a lot of things, Dirty um, huh? Dirty millennial. It, exactly. Exactly. Being a filthy millennial. Um, but I don't think I don't, I was born in 94. I don't think I'm a millennial. I think I'm whatever millennial was before millennial. I think that's like, (laughs) I believe, I believe that this is like 95 or 94, 95 was like the last year. And so I think I'm clear. I think my wife's a millennial though, but that's a different conversation (laughs) for a different day. Um, but I will have people come in and be that, you know, have trained traditionally in legitimately be upset by the lack of rule that I have in my gym and the, um, the relaxed atmosphere that I have in my gym. And it's a, for me, it's a very weird thing to, you know, it's like, um, I think some people become dependent on this set of 12 rules that there are at the gym. And if, well, if you don't have them, it's going to be, it's going to be chaos. And, and I always look at it from the opposite perspective of like, Hey, you could have all these specific rules, but if your instructor and your gym owner is like a scumbag, people are going to recognize that. And they're going to one, either leave or two follow and be a scumbag too. You know? And so I think you see that so often that, you know, like, uh, cause you, you had said, you know, people are very respectful to each other at my school. Well, I always look at the guys that are like kind of the higher level guys, um, like Justin Huff, who, you know, and, um, you know, I have, you know, quite a few of them that not from anything that I have done, they just treat the lower level guys really respectfully and they're really always helpful to them. And that's what I always see is like, you know, those lower level guys, when they start to get to blue and purple belt, they say, well, this is how I was treated by Justin when he was a purple belt. And so this is how I'm just supposed to, I didn't, without even thinking, this is how I treat the new white belts. You know, you're nice to them and you help them. Yeah. And I, I think whether you're aware of it or not, you did influence that. You, you have selected Justin as a student that you kept around and you have, you built a rapport and you know, whether it's intentional or not, you know, there's something about these people that we keep around these higher belts. We promote them because we see values and we see that they're progressing. If you have a guy come in and he's just smashing people, you know, I'm not going to say names, Eric Hubler, you know, (laughs) like you will naturally kick these people out. No, um, you'll orient them to the gym. There's what's called a hegemonic discourse. So there's something that's happening within that environment that perpetuates a certain style of interaction. You know, whether you're aware or not, the way that you speak about lower belts, if you're very dismissive and derogatory, other people pick up on it and they'll probably do it. But if you're respectful and nice, and I see it in your dad too, you guys treat everyone great. So that's naturally going to just spread and people are going to pick that up. And that's going to be the philosophy of the school. And I think that's going to breed a community and that that's going to cause either for the wellness of the community or for the worsening community. And as far as the rules are going, I think it's a natural progression that American 
style Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm not going to say American jiu-jitsu, American style Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, they're going to, there's going to be some drift as far as the traditional structure, just like we saw how the structure of jiu-jitsu changed when it went from Japan came to Brazil, the culture ultimately influenced it. And if we look at kind of our individualistic society, we're not as rule bound or really emphasizing hierarchical structures or deference to authority that you would see in other societies like Japanese society or Brazilian society. That, that makes sense. Do you, um, we're, we're right at an hour uh, and usually we finish with how do I suck less at jujitsu, but you've answered that question already. You know, you've, you've, uh, we've went through that already being your second episode. Uh, so I was curious in talking to you, do you have any intention of ever opening your own school? Um, so I recently talked about this. I think for me, so intrinsic motivation, and I'll make this quick, is your own motivations for doing it because you love it, you're passionate about it. And there's extrinsic motivation when we do something for money, for fame, for recognition, whatever it is. For me, when I was competing and getting money because I was teaching, I recognized that it was taking away my love for the sport. My, my, the extrinsic motivation of money undermined my intrinsic motivation, my passion. And I found that for me, when I do these talks and I consult and I do sports psych and I do clinical psychology as my primary job, and I love doing that work, it's very meaningful work, and then get to train jiu-jitsu as a pleasure and teach people, maybe people I train with or helping out my training partners, that brings me much more enjoyment than if I had a primary school. Now it'd be great to have some students that I could help out and really focus on, but I think owning a school brings with it a lot of requirements that would take away my love for the sport. I don't know what it's going to look like in the future. I think um, being able to help out in someone else's school, being able to teach, um, you know, celebrity wise every once in a while is good enough for me. Um, but I don't know what it could look like in the future. I know for me, um, I would really like to open up uh, a nonprofit jujitsu school. And now this is not my idea. And Josh, I want you to tell me what you think and just be quick. What do you think about a jiu-jitsu school that people only pay if they don't show up? I like that idea. What is, <laughs> I so it's not my idea. This is, this belongs to Martin Marachimo, one of the greatest structures that I've had over my life. He owns a Phenom Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Irvine, California. You only have to pay when you don't show up. And it could be on a daily basis. You know, everyone has the standard $100 a month or whatever it might be for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in your area. And you break it down prorated per day. And people only have to pay when they don't show up. <laughs> That's a really cool idea. I really... A nonprofit, all money goes towards a school and it just perpetuates itself. And that's like the best possible situation. Everyone just comes together, trains. There's no trying to get extra money out of it or make a profit or whatever it might be to own a business. I know I'm crazy, right? How dare you want to put food on your table? But this is just an idea for a community wellness center that people come together, train, and maybe get all the benefits of martial arts training without the struggle of having to pay for it in the same amount that maybe other communities can pay for more easily. Man, I, I love that idea. I like I think I love the idea because, you know, it just shows jujitsu's ability to be used for so many, so much more um, than just making money. If you haven't watched it yet, 
Um, the do you, do you, Are you familiar with the Grappling Central podcast? Um, never heard of it. Okay, so Ryan Ford runs it. It's I think it's probably the the biggest jujitsu podcast. It's definitely one of the longest running jujitsu podcasts. And um, Ryan Ford, I believe he's a brown belt now. He runs it and um, always has really big name interviews. Well, he did something called The Saint of Crackland. It was a documentary. It's 30 minutes. It's on YouTube. And um, it was he did a really good job on it. But basically... It's talking about um, Croclangia, which is in Sao Paulo, and it is like eight blocks or something like that, but it's like the worst place on earth. And this guy decided to start a jiu-jitsu school there because he said, you know, you can provide, um, you know, rehab to the parents and you can do all this stuff, but if the kids have nothing to do, they're going to just get involved in these drugs. And so... um, it's a really cool, it's just a really cool thing, but it's a nonprofit that he runs in, you know, this, in the, one of the worst places on earth. And it's just really cool to get to see how people will be so affected by jujitsu um, and get so much good in their life because of jujitsu and then say, well, now I want to, I want to give that to somebody else. I want to provide that for somebody else. And so I love, I absolutely love the idea of the, you know, pay per when you don't show. And I mean, if I did that at my gym, I would probably make more money for how, <laughs> how some of these people don't show up. <laughs> yeah. So nonprofit maybe in the future. I don't know. Uh, and I just want to reiterate that jujitsu has so many benefits. Science hasn't fully un- unraveled all of them. And I appreciate you just bringing awareness that getting out there, exercising, being part of a good community. It may not be for everybody jujitsu, but there's other types of those things for people. Even if it's Tai Chi, even if it's just joining a biking club, doing these things can make, can improve your mental well, well-being. And I, I strongly encourage anyone to get out there, be active and be social. Thank you so much for being on Jeff. Uh, thank you for talking. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and um, hopefully it will be a pleasure to get to train with you before it's time for you to move. I know, it's coming up. Thank you for the opportunity, Josh. Of course, man, of course. And that is the episode. Thank you guys for listening. As always, uh, thanks Jeff for being on. That was one of, just anytime I get to talk to Jeff about anything, uh, me and Jeff try to just murder each other when we grapple, but uh, you know, he's moving soon. He's leaving me soon. He's leaving me with all the losers that we normally train with. He's leaving me by myself as the only good-looking guy. And so it's kind of tough, but I'll have to make it through. And, uh, you know, I'm going to miss that guy. I'm going to miss him so much. I'm going to miss talking. I I know that fighting him every, you know, two or three times a week really, really hard and it's really good training for me. Uh, And I'm, of course, going to miss that. You always miss uh, losing a training partner. But just, you know, getting to kind of missing that unique perspective that Jeff has. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to miss that man. And uh, it sucks that that happens, but that's something that happens in jujitsu is uh, people come and go in it, whether they have to move, whether their job is making the move or whether they're quitting jujitsu. I've had so many cool relationships that started in jujitsu and maybe now we don't train together anymore or they don't train at all in Uh, it's still, it's like an important note to think like, it's not always going to be like this. I've said this before in episodes, but uh, 
when I started jujitsu, I remember thinking like, okay, this is going to be where I train forever. Uh, I still am under the same coach, which is very unique. It's just uh, really uncommon, but he's not teaching at the same gym that he originally was teaching at when I met him. Uh, he is not, uh, you know, he, he's in a different city now and I still train under my coach, Kyle, as you guys know, you've gotten to hear from him a few different times on the show, but we kind of, um, you know, things are different now, but I do still have some relationships that I've built from day one of jujitsu that I still have, uh, still a guy comes to mind that I will have on eventually. His name's Mike Allen. He and I were, yeah, really, we were two of Kyle's first students ever, and we are now both black belts under him. We're both guys that, that stuck with him through the whole time. I think that's something to note about Kyle's character that uh, it's so common for that to happen that people just stay with the guy. But uh, uh, just just having those relationships, you know, that. but that's only one. You know, there were a lot of us that were all training together at the Hit Squad, the original gym that I trained at, and a lot of them don't train anymore. I honestly, uh, I don't know where a lot of them even are at this point. And so it's just always important to note, like we always have a cool crew when we train. We always have a good group when we train, but just like always note, hey, this may not last forever, so just be sure to enjoy it now. And, uh, you know, just that is kind of the note with Jeff, you know, I got to, I think it was probably two or three years that he was here and probably two years that he was here. And uh, I really got to enjoy it. You know, I got to train with him a lot. I got to hang out with him a lot and uh, still stay friends with him, but things are different. It is different when you don't have that person uh, there two or three times a week pushing you saying, hey, uh, you sucked at this. Hey, you should do this better. And, uh, uh, or hey, you know, you beat me with that. You know, I need to figure out a way to beat that. You know, like, and I'm gonna miss that. And, but I'm glad I got to enjoy it. That's just kind of my finishing thought as I listened through this episode again and uh, kind of reflected on the fact that uh, I'm losing one of my favorite training partners. And uh, those things happen, they suck, but we just grow from them. We continue and when Jeff becomes super famous for being a mental coach for jujitsu, I'll be like, yeah, he was on my podcast first and he's my friend. Well, we probably won't be friends. Me and Jeff don't like each other that much, but still, that's okay. All right, so that is all I have for you guys today. Make sure if you have not done it already that you get the Simplifying Jiu-Jitsu ebook, bjjsucks.com slash simple. I made this as easy as humanly possible for you to get because as I told you guys before, I really believe that this is big, that this could be something as it grows that could change jujitsu. I truly 100% believe that. And uh, I want you guys to be a part of it with me. So that's all I have for you guys today. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. And I hope that you guys suck just a little bit less at jujitsu.